So welcome everybody for another episode of Mentors for Military, and this time I'm joined by the sidekick, Mike Pritz, who hasn't been on this show for quite some time frame, and I'm just glad to have you back on, brother, on the show, whenever I can get you on here. Thanks, Robert. It's great to be back. I, I, I wish I could do more shows, but unfortunately, schedule and life and everything else, retirement or what used to be retirement has kind of taken a precedent. Yeah, I see you in the hot tub and everything every once in a while. So I know what uh, your life is just so rough right now. Uh, I, I'm in a hot tub as much as I can, brother. <laughs> <laughs> that and whiskey and beer. That's uh, usually what you're posting about. But right. uh, it's good to have you back on. And we're going to be doing a little bit of a, a different um, story here or a different type of podcast than what we've done in the past. And I think it's really uh, a relevant one and something that uh, we'll, we'll tie into current events and those types of things as well. But I'm joined by a number of guests, and I want to give them an opportunity to to uh, share their you know background and everything. So, Joey, we'll start with you. Robert, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I was brought to this by by Mike by following him, thus following you and your show. And uh, he he talked to me. We talked about this uh, monument that's going up that we'll talk about later. Say hey, it's a great idea to have you on, uh, and um, here we are. So I, I know Mike from from the Army. We worked together once upon a time, as well as uh, Kyle. Uh, he, he was across the hall and mutual friends. I can thank him and his bride for meeting my wife. And then George and I met in Normandy in 2014 and uh, became friends and just stayed in touch ever since. Great. Hey, thanks for having me on, Robert. It's, it's really exciting to be here and, and, and to get to, to share some time with some other guys that I served with. Um, you know, I was in I was in Special Forces for a bit, a little bit less than, uh, than some of the other guys on, on the podcast today. But, um, you know, excited to talk about a topic that uh, has become near and dear to my heart. Um, so you know, th thanks again for having me. Yeah. Hey, uh, Robert, thanks again. Uh, this is terrific uh, to share to share some time and listen to these Special Forces guys and tell some stories. Uh, this is an honor for me to be on the show. Uh, my dad served during World War II, and uh, it was one of the defining moments in his life. Uh, and, and I'm just blessed to, uh, to have learned a lot about my dad, and I just try to share it with as many folks as I can. Um, he did the heavy lifting. I just get a chance to share some stories. <laughs> And well, I'm so glad that all of you are on here. And again, like I said, we're taking it a bit of a departure of what we normally do. On an annual basis, you know, in June, we, we you know, talk about D-Day, World War II, um, the events that took place during that time frame. But I don't know that there are a lot of people that really understand the full history that goes into um, World War II and the events and stuff that took place in a detailed level. And some of that might, might be because... Uh, primarily because in, in our education system today, there's there's a very finite time that they're able to spend on certain topics in education. And unfortunately, um, not enough detail is probably given to World War II. Right. I, I think that, you know, if you look at the, the breadth of, of United States history, how do you include that into a curriculum um, with some amount of detail that allows kids to, to grasp that, to learn it, to work with that information? Um, the way that most uh, public schools in the country do that is they spread it out from middle school through high school. So unless you've you've taken a, a dual enrollment college class in high school or perhaps an advanced placement class in high school, both of those courses would would study U.S. history from inception all the way, you know, as far forward as they could get in the time. 
But what most uh, public school districts do is they break that up. So in middle school, uh, these kids will study, you know, basically our founding documents uh, and then all the way through the Civil War. And in high school, U.S. history picks it up from Reconstruction forward uh, to the present. So, you know, realistically, a, a young um, student graduating high school, 17 or 18 years old, has not studied the foundation of, of our nation uh, and, and really the Revolutionary War all the way through the Civil War since they were, you know, 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. It's uh, kind of amazing to me because I remember that it was something when I went to high school that we actually had to study again, and we got much more in-depth in high school level, including at that time frame, we actually had to take a class on American uh, Americanism versus communism. It was a half-semester requirement, which was really helpful when you think about it uh, today. Sounds like a very relevant and fantastic class for Isn't high it? school students today, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And there was a, it was actually, it was called ABC for short, and there was a book and uh, that went along with that, and you studied all of the various countries and socialism and understanding the difference between a constitutional government and that of socialist versus communist and the whole bit. Uh, but I thought what we would do, because, you know, we've got a lot of people here that truly understand about this conflict is get into the soldier's perspective because um, again George is here that blessing us with his presence uh, you know and his stories from his father and um, you know George I'll let you speak a little bit more about the details of that and his unit and the whole thing but you know when we think about the soldier's perspective Joey you and I were talking offline about a specific battle that many people may have watched the movie of Dunkirk and you know although that movie is kind of challenging I know for people to sit through but if you ever watched the movie that um, was also out there about um, Winston Churchill, Churchill, it was The Finest Hour. The Finest Hour really sh uh, showed the perspective of government and leadership um, at the highest levels trying to make the, the decisions of what they were going to do within the war and trying to get American assistance. But yet Dunkirk showed the British Army's perspective of being boots on the ground and being pinned in. And I thought that that was a great lead in of really some of the challenges that were going on during that time frame, specifically to this battle or to uh, World War Two. Yeah, absolutely, Robert. Um, and the significance of that, the Battle of Dunkirk, in my opinion, was at that time, Britain was the last uh, democracy in place in Europe. Uh, and they they had everybody on their heels on the coast and churchill was doing what he could to get everybody out to preserve what he had left um which yeah we have to go back into world war one I, I, I believe it's a, a big lead into world war ii you lost over uh 1.3 million uh 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 british and and island uh and irish uh over 1.9 million french uh, died from World War One. There wasn't a palette for conflict, uh, and if and Britain really had uh, the most enthusiasm to counter uh, Nazi aggression at that time. So pulling back into Dunkirk, uh, it was June. It was uh, May twenty seventh to June fourth, I believe, was Dunkirk, and then around June eighteenth is when Charles de Gaulle made the speech to stand up the free French. He was in exile. Uh, so unilaterally, he starts, uh, in my opinion, start, starts the French resistance, uh, the free French. And then uh, Churchill approaches him and, and uh, says, hey, I, I want you to, to organize this a little bit more, um, which becomes the BCRA. 
uh, and he stands up. He sees the value added of the French resistance and starts up the uh, Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, also known as the the Baker Boys, uh, the Baker Irregulars, Baker Street Irregulars. I don't know if anybody has, has heard of that, which then turns into the Special Operations Executive. Uh, to where this uh, unit uh, assists, enables, trains uh, uh, French in exile, pushes them back in to help organize their networks. Uh, And this, in turn, uh, is value added uh, to the United States, and they see it, and they're pressured to stand up the OSS, which then becomes a joint organization within the OSS called the Jedbergs that's compiled of... uh, for different countries, it's structured differently, but for France, you have uh, one, one, and one. Uh, a, a French uh, soldier or a French operative, an English operative, and a uh, an American operative, which is multi-service. It's not exclusive to the Army. So backing back off of that, uh, Churchill sees the value added of, of the resistance, and he's he says, hey, if, if we can enable these guys, if we can help help them a little bit more, we can tie them into our war plans. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, as we were talking earlier, I mean, it's the uh, quintessential example of uh, unconventional warfare, which is something I latched onto. I thought it was uh, great. You know, activities conducted to enable resistance movement or an insurgency to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a government or occupying power by operating through or with an, uh, an underground auxiliary and a guerrilla force in a denied area. It's, it's the perfect story that, that shows that. Um, so, so moving along, uh, this, uh, the PE that's happened, uh, the preparation of the environment, which is Kyle can talk a lot more about the Alliance Network, uh, they do a, a, a great example of uh, setting, setting conditions for D-Day. And from 1940 up into the invasion of the summer of 44, I mean, it, it wasn't just anything kinetic. You, you have to remember how uh, the occupied portion of uh, France and uh, was 60%, 40% covering the ports. Uh, and 40% of France was Vichy uh, occupied, it was Vichy ran. In that time from 1940 to the summer of 44 was, was a lot of PE for D-Day, which was the decisive operation. And in, in my, my studying, I, I felt like that was a story that was you know, drastically overlooked. Uh, you're talking about the decisive operation of the uh, European Theater of Operations being D-Day and the shaping operation, the most contributing being uh, the French resistance. Just on the evening of June 5th, uh, over 950 communication lines bridges uh, were cut and uh, factories started to get sabotaged. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of uh, post June 5th that, that compartmentalized or cut off, isolated the Cotentin Peninsula, the Normandy region, which facilitated the success of getting that foothold. And uh, the French resistance has numerous stories, uh, a lot of it isolated, a lot of it lost, um, a lot of it with a lot of hurt behind it. Uh, It's kind of reminds me how we do not rely on today's single source uh, reports. You know, there 
the the French the, there's a lot of there's a lot of heartache amongst families, neighborhoods, towns of people that told on people uh, for the wrong reasons, uh, for grudges, uh, for cowardness. I mean, the list goes on and on. So digging up uh, these stories has also been a very difficult uh, uh, environment to navigate because it's very sensitive. And, and the stories that, that don't get told are really interesting, right? Like, and I think if you back up, right, like Dunkirk, you've got the Germans coming into into France, right? So it's now occupied France and, and and people not putting up with it, right? And that being a very dangerous move in some cases. And in some cases, you know, Mike and I were talking about this before, like, like a, you know, a very small act of resistance just to, you know, show that you're not going to put up with this and you're not okay with, with these German occupiers. And, and I think like the, the piece that you, you don't hear about, or, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not looking for it, are, are these stories of how these networks operated, you know, in this occupied country where you've got, a, you know, your, your foe from the last world war that's coming to your country now and, and, and your government has, has kind of just capitulated and, and given up. And now there's this, you know, quasi, you know, take care of the French, but really, you know, uh, listen to what the Germans are looking for, government of the Vichys. And now you've got people like um, the woman that stood up the Alliance Network, uh, and I'm going to butcher her, her French name, but Marie Madeleine, right, who, who like actively went out and sought others that were of the like mind to go, you know, start to resist and say, hey, okay, you know, we don't have the means to fight these guys right now, but we sure as heck can go and collect information and go, you know, find some way to get that to the Brits and maybe that'll be of help. And, and I think those little acts of service and resistance, you know, ultimately over the course from, you know, 1940 to 1944 led up to that invasion, right? And I think that's the part of the story that in, in a lot of ways gets missed. A lot of it that, you know, a woman was leading this massive intelligence organization and, you know, kind of operating under the nose of the Germans in some ways. And that is just, I think is really incredible. Right. Yeah. An individual in, in, in a sex that they would have never have thought of. I mean, they didn't think that a woman would, would do something like that in the first place. A hundred percent. And I mean, you know, like to be yeah. super clear, right. She didn't really start the network. Like there was this other gentleman who was a French military intelligence officer. I think he went by the code name Navarre, but like, I mean, this mm -hmm. woman that ran, you know, over a thousand agents had no formal, you know, intelligence training or military training. She just, you know, was headstrong and, and learned from her mistakes and, and, and ended up collecting some of this intelligence that was really consequential, like information about the U-boats setting, you know, setting sail to go try and intercept the Allied convoys coming across the Atlantic, right? Or information about the V-2 rocket program, or ultimately the, you know, really detailed geographic intelligence about the defenses in Normandy, right? That allowed the Allied planners to go plan their operations. And, and like, that story, because she was a woman, didn't really get told. And I think what's also interesting, it, it was on her mind while it was happening, right? Like she knew that a lot of men weren't okay with, you know, taking orders from a woman and, and had to navigate that and had to figure out her own proxies and, you know, how, how to play that. And, and I think that's just incredible. I want to speak a little bit about the resistance. I know that there was um, a Columbia University historian, and I'm going to butcher his name, probably named Espan Deek, who wrote a brilliant book called Europe on Trial. And uh, during that, he described 
uh, or kind of kind of reminds us what it really meant to be a member of the resistance. And this is a quote from him. He says, to resist meant to leave the legal path and to act as a criminal in order to be able to print and distribute illegal newspapers when had to still strictly control printing paper and machines and to forge or steal ration cards, banknotes, residence permits, and identity cards to fight in the enemy meant that they needed to seize arms from military garrisons or from rival resistors. All this required the talents of a burglar, a forger, and a thief. So you think about, you know, placing yourself in that perspective of the day, if this were to happen even on American soil, you know, you're you're in France in this time period. You just suffered like, you know, you said, Joey, through World War One, a million people were, you know, lost in that. And now all of a sudden you have a foreign entity that has invaded your country and you're going to go underground to try to resist this. But yet you have to do things that are very unorthodox. You're going to have to be the burglar, the thief, the, you know, the forger and everything and go out of your way um, against what most people probably wouldn't do. So so before we push a little further on that, Robert, I I, I can't... uh emphasize enough the, the casualties, just France, just France, 1.9 million people more. Uh, in, in Verdun, the French lost over 400,000 in Somme, over 200. Uh, in Ypres with the Canadians, they lost uh, uh, thousands, uh, tens of thousands. So the, the fighting male, and then after the Spanish flu, there, there wasn't a whole lot of options. So I think coincidentally, going back to what... Uh, Kyle was saying uh, about uh, female agents. I think it's a hybrid of, hey, what was available and then what was expected, and they were not expecting that out of uh, female agents. And uh, top three to talk about: uh, Andrea Borrell, uh, uh, Lee Stilbasak, and uh, Odette Sansom. Uh, they're captured in, in the book by Sarah Rose D-Day Girls, and, and we'll talk more about that. But. Uh, Going back with the casualties and, and what was left in France and then the PTSD that, that the French people had from World War I, they did not want World War II at all. They, they didn't want anything to do with conflict with the Germans. So uh, once we get into June and, and, and smoke is settling in France and the division happens, uh, there aren't a whole lot of resistors. Uh, but let's not underestimate their power of preparation in the environment. Uh, of course, we talked about how uh, Churchill capitalized on that, started setting up organizations, thus uh, the Americans did as well. But it took a very special person in France to put themselves out there because best case scenario, if they were compromised, they were immediately killed. Worst case scenario, they were tortured for days on end and to, in the attempt to compromise their network. Uh, so it was everything on the line for a French resistor. And uh, it's a, they're very powerful stories. Uh, Andre Borel uh, could be argued as the first female, not argued, she is, the first female combat paratrooper. Uh, and uh, Lisa de Bosac uh, is the second by like three seconds, jumping into central France and helping setting up networks. Uh, Burrell had aided over 65 pilots and uh, British pilots air crews before she was actually recruited in 42 uh, to the SOE. She was compromised uh, moving pilots through France, uh, Spain, and the, uh, the Pyrenees Mountains. 
uh, the network was crushed and she was able to E&E got to the UK and and quickly they knew who she was and asked her for a job and, and she she took it um, and uh, Lisa Bozak uh, or Bazak the, the second uh, female combat paratrooper by a few seconds uh, she was recruiting up in Paris caught wind of the invasion because that was very compartmentalized the Churchill did not share that until a few days beforehand uh, and she rode her bike to Normandy in three days from Paris, hiding in ditches, barns. I mean, it's it just the, her story uh, is very, very impressive to link up with her brother and uh, to further organize and send recon reports back to uh, England, to London, to uh, facilitate or in support of um, Operation Cobra, which was the, was the breakout of Normandy. I mean, these are impressive uh, stories of sacrifice that are lost. And I think uh, generally people, when they talk about World War II in the Eastern uh, European theater of operations, they gravitate towards ironclad formations of uh, unified troops and, you know, Market Garden, uh, Varsity, you know, all the big Battle of the Bulge. But it's... It's so uh, overlooked, the, the, the setting of conditions by the French resistance and their enablers. I think you guys are talking about really high-level operations for, for resistance fighters. But how does it become that? I mean, what, what and I, I talk to my students about this a lot. The Germans were known for, for coming in as oppressors, for coming in as, as really a conquering force. They did the same thing in Russia, right? When they could have they completely changed the outlook of what becomes the Soviet Union if they would have come in as liberators. We want to export a, 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 a way of life on you that is better than what you're currently experiencing. But they don't do that. They charge the French, right, for their, their oppression. They charge them for their occupation. Joey, I think your article is 440 million francs per day. How do you pay for that? How does a government that's just been dominated pay for that? Well, you give your blood and treasure, right? You, you're, you're young men are forced to go work, you know, in labor camps, are forced to leave, as as did some of the prisoners from Dunkirk, right? The ones who weren't rescued, they were they became prisoners. They could barter their lives to go work for Nazi Germany. Um, as you start to see this happening, you, you, you experience a form of oppression by another nation uh, that is that is different um, than your way of life, that that doesn't, you know, really conform to life and liberty. And, and that's where you start to see small acts of resistance. You know, there's a, there's a photo that I've got somewhere in the library around here of, a, of an old French woman walking in front of a, um, of a German formation, right, that's being moved away uh, by, the, by the French police. It's, it's done deliberately as an act of defiance. Um, some of the things that the, that the French did passively were just to give incorrect directions to German soldiers would get up and leave when German soldiers came into a cafe. Uh, graffiti, right? Just graffiti around celebrating what was to be French uh, and what was to be part of the resistance. These are really small acts of, of resistance with very little consequence that start that trend within a nation to, to rebel back against uh, an oppressing, you know, uh, force from, from outside. And I think that 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 mentality amongst the French who have experienced so much from World War One, as, as Joey is so, so I think well, you know, categorized. 
Um, they're not going to allow it to happen or continue to happen. Uh, and then out of that, some of these these people, you know, the stories that Kyle was, was telling telling us, some of these people and their stories come to light and show really what what these these um these great individuals did to save their own country. I think it's important to, you know, for people who aren't familiar with that history too, Mike, to understand that, you know, in June of 1940, the overwhelming census was that Germany would win the war. You know, it was, um, you know, pretty much apparent uh, based on, you know, the Reich's victory and everything. And so when they occupied it, one of the things they did in terms of oppression as well was round up, I think it was around 30,000 French civilian hostages were rounded up and shot you know, to try to intimidate others who were involved in acts of resistance just to try to set the precedence. Adding into why we think a lot of this is lost is, you know, this was not a professionalized army, the resistance, uh, which I think why we're having this conversation. Uh, they, <clears throat> this wasn't, there wasn't like small unit maneuver units that were able to, they weren't sitting in morning reports and, in uh, daily sit reps, you know, uh, big uh, area commanders were, you know, to to Charles de Gaulle. But a lot of this stuff is not captured because they were not a pre- professional army, in my opinion. You know what I mean? It's a lot of like, who was there? Who knew? Uh, who shared it? And they were the, the perfect example of uh, quiet professionals, uh, I think grudgingly a little bit for the for their own safety but a lot of it was their professionalism like hey this is our story uh this is what we did but it's not for public consumption and it'll die with us and you know to a fault i think because we need to better understand uh holistically the contributions to such a a, an imperative conflict of our history and part of our collective history Joey and Kyle, I mean, this was also, I mean, just to put it in perspective of what you're talking about, it was really a resistance attended by people from all walks of life and all political views. I mean, they they kind of had the same purpose or passion or desire, you know, to rid the the Germans of their country. Um, And so they set aside those differences. But like you said, these were just normal people. And I think, you know, like you said, they came from all walks of life. And I think the original core of a lot of them, you know, there were occasional military officers. They were, you know, naval officers or Air Force officers. But there were also people that, you know, were working uh, in in different uh, commercial parts of the economy that that actually had better, much better access and placement than, you know, than a a military officer might, you know, when the Germans occupied things. So, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's I think it's fascinating to see how it's it's, you know, all across uh, France and I think even maybe more interesting and, and maybe why it's it, the French resistance sticks out as this really interesting, you know, kind of point in time is that, um, you know, they were able to coordinate and collaborate with folks outside of France, right? That, you know, the radio was at a point where they could send transmissions at night, you know, and, and send back messages and, and reports to, to, to Britain. And, and then vice versa to, to, to coordinate. And there were airplanes and parachutes that could, you know, to insert agents or to, to drop supplies. And that wasn't something that, you know, was possible in previous conflicts, right? And this is that first time, you know, as we think about modern unconventional warfare, where those are all tools of the trade. Um, but this was the first time that that ever happened. Uh, and, um, and how they made use and, and the tactics that were invented 
uh, to do that of, you know, setting up bonfires on uh, drop zones or, or airstrips to, you know, to validate that this is the right people are here tonight, right? Or, or flashing a Morse code light at a, a little British airplane that's flying into with, you know, the whatever letter was the letter of the day. Like these were all things that they they had to invent on the fly. It wasn't out of some manual because all it was that, you know, kind of intersection of technology and a need and, and, and people that were willing to put it into play um, and just how they leveraged that. What were some of the events that perhaps led to the D-Day that they specifically, um, you know, up to the, I'm talking about the moments, the hours, the days that led up to that, where they really help, um, you know, that be successful as well? If you watch The Longest Day, when the BBC code goes out, I mean, that that's really when they knew. They, they, they knew it was going to happen. They did not know when. They had no idea. And... Uh, when they were told to execute Violet, uh, one of the one of the operations, they knew the invasion was coming. That was the trigger, and uh, the efforts were monumental on being able to uh, facilitate the D-Day landings because that was a big gamble, big gamble, uh, which we've already failed at before. Uh, but m- moving forward on that. Uh, the Germans had no idea that the the uh, the the enigma was compromised at that point, if I remember correctly. So by cutting their their uh, overland uh, comms, it forced them to use that unwittingly while they were just helping develop uh, uh, the the uh, field of view of the of the environment for the Allies. So it just everything worked synergistically. Uh, at that point, by the contribution of Violet, um, and post, post just a few days, like uh, the Panzer, the second uh, second Dostreich, uh, second Dostreich Panzer Division, uh, SS Panzer Division, which was the premier at their high, at the height of their readiness down in uh, Montauban, I believe it was called in southern France. It was supposed to take them three days to get into uh, uh, get up to reinforce in Normandy, and they were, it took them three weeks because of the efforts of the French resistance isolating them. I mean, you're talking about 209 tanks and 15,000 troops, and uh, and that was enabled by two jet teams, uh, quinine and ammonia. And gosh, man, just an incredible shaping operation for the decisive operation. I always go back to that because a lot of people you know, tend to counter argue, well, what did they do? Uh, what, what did they actually do? And they quantify that by, by uh, combat action. And albeit there's truth of that, there's, it's much more of that. And, you know, I think one thing that really struck a nerve when you just said that, Joey, is, is what, what the, like the, the go word was. Have you ever heard this story that the, uh, so, okay. So no. the BBC every night had this like uh, kind of French update where they'd be, passing all these kind of just updates into France on the BBC channel. And it was, you know, hey, Robert's kid is okay. You know, Joey's uncle made it here. And it was just all these kind of updates, but they were also code, right? And there were all these, these codes, right, that are inserted into, into that, that the, you know, the resistors or, or the OSS teams or the, the SOE folks on the ground were listening for. And I think the word that they were, or the, the phrase they were looking for, you know, for to start the D-Day actions was, um, it was something around, is Napoleon's nose still there? And Napoleon's nose is a rock formation on the coast of France, right? And so obviously this rock formation is never going to move. 
And, and so that was like the kind of the, the key phrase that was like, oh, it's time to go now, right? Is, you know, something around, is Napoleon's wow. nose still there or it was still there? And I think that's just, I don't know, like a, a funny, some, you know, staff officer somewhere probably got a laugh out of uh, creating that. So um, many cool things you can lean off of, of where the basics come from and how they worked. And we, we always say, Hey, what makes you what makes you good? Being good at the basics, and and these stories just go all the way back to that because everybody always tries to think way much more outside of the box. And if you use the French Resistance model, I mean, granted, you know, technology and everything else was different, time, place, space, but there, it's great. It's just it's really good to tie what you know into what happened. Go ahead, Mike. I I don't want to hijack this, but but you know, this is the stuff that we did in the Q course. At least I did. I went, I went through the Q course in the early 90s, um, and I, I think that, it, you know, I don't know that kids get that today. You know, I don't know that we're still doing the message pickups for, for taking up rolls of 35-millimeter film with Ed Brody. I don't know that we're doing that anymore because there's so much technology. But as I read through some of these historical documents and some of the books and pictures that you, you've shared, you know, Kyle, on, on the social media page on Instagram – I, I think of my own experience in the Q course that this is really, you know, kind of ground level trade craft that, that most uh, most of us learned and probably will remember the rest of our lives. I definitely remember, you know, same thing, Mike. It, it made me yeah. think of a lot of that. And and I think just one other quick story that just, you know, as you, you approach D-Day, I think was just absolutely incredible. And I mean, maybe there's less of a need for this now because we have, you know, drones and satellite footage and all that. But there was an artist living in the Normandy region named Robert Dawin. Uh, I'm going to, again, butcher his name. Doan. There Dillon. we go. Yep. And his code name was Civet. And, and he was an artist. Like, he was a sculptor and, and like, a painter. And him and his son traveled all over the Normandy region um, and, and, like, on their bikes, you know, stopping places up on top of church steeples. And he essentially created, like, a 55-foot map of, of the beachhead that we were going to land on, right? And, and collected where there were gun emplacements, where there were anti-aircraft guns, where there was a bunker. Like a yeah. sandbox. Like created that, you know, like- commander's picture that Eisenhower needed mm-hmm. to give to his staff officers to plan where they needed divisions or bombing runs or, you know, where to put the airborne. That all came from this sculptor who eventually died for his efforts, like just after handing off this massive document that someone wrapped around their torso and smuggled out of the Normandy region and eventually was picked up by a... Uh, uh, a Lysander, like these little British planes that would do these stole takeoffs on like little, you know, some farmer's uh, field. And that that was smuggled out of country and then eventually given to the intelligence teams to go build the the giant, you know, sand table for the Normandy invasion. Which, which the, add on to that, it was, it was a big deal, this 55 foot canvas, because you had to, correct me, Mike, uh, is it Dieppe, Dieppe? The, the failed uh, invasion before where the Canadians and the Brits spearheaded that uh, that landing, uh, they understood that they needed the best picture possible of defense in depth from sword all the way to Utah. A lot of our listeners probably uh, watching, you know, or have seen movies about the Band of Brothers and um, the various units and that were engaged, you know, there, there's a lot of movies out there and George, I know you even have a story of one of them in which your father was watching and, uh, what he felt like after that. But George, y- your father was part of band of brothers and actually jumped into D day. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about him and, and his unit. And I think you even have a clip of him describing that jump. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I came across the uh, interview he had done about three months before he was killed. And it's a story I'm very familiar with, uh, jumping into Normandy. And like everyone, he was overloaded. And he was the radio man, so he was carrying the batteries. And um, as they were coming over the site, you know, they had that little box, the the red and the green, and um, it was time to get up and hook up. And then when the green light, they jumped out. And in the case of my dad, he said there was some anti-aircraft uh, coming in, and it hit the box screwed it up and it was just going red green red green red green red green and then the navigator came out and said hey what are you guys still doing here for so so he jumped out uh, or they jumped out oh, gosh. and um but the interesting thing was in in this particular story prior to jumping out because you know my dad was overloaded like the rest of them he asked harry uh, lieutenant welch he said hey because uh, my dad was in the fifth position and he asked uh, Lieutenant Welch if he could get closer to the door. He said, "You know, I'm not going to get near. I'm not going to get near the door fast enough. So if, if I'm in the second position, so we had him switch with Cobb. And if you remember Cobb in the series, Cobb was kind of a kind of a surly kind of a guy. He didn't get along with everybody, or they at least made it look that way. And uh, so my dad jumps out." And, you know, uh, lives happily ever after. But Cobb actually got hit uh, in the butt, you know, with, a, with an incoming, with a bullet. And uh, he ends up, he can't jump. Now, if you look ahead to episode four with the replacements, when Cobb was railing on the replacements that were wearing that badge that the whole company or the whole unit had gotten, and he said uh, to the young replacement, I can't remember exactly who it was. Cobbs was a little drunk, probably. And he said, hey, uh, you can't wear that badge. You didn't jump into Normandy. And Randleman went over to him and said, hey, Cobb, do you remember? You didn't jump neither. So, so uh, and and the reason he didn't jump was because he switched with my father. So, so my father jumped. But uh, because they were a little bit off schedule, uh, my dad landed and, and he didn't see anybody he knew. So he connected with a guy who was uh, headquarters company. And uh, so they navigated their way around and uh, they were stuck in the hedgerows. And he didn't end up getting to uh, his unit until like eight, nine o'clock the next morning. So, uh, so that was his first adventure. With a leg pack that weighed uh, about 150 pounds. I lost mine too. Well, anyway, uh, number 18 man gets in first, 17, 16. And Lieutenant Wells was left behind me. And it took two guys from the Air Corps to pick me up into that plane. Before I go on, he mentioned a guy named Cop. George. What's that again? <laughs> Look at me any old, you're not the army anymore. <laughs> We're all lined up. And I'm fifth man in the stick. Fifth. I said to Lieutenant Welch, I'll never make the door. He said, well, change with cop. 
You just heard what happened to the cop. <laughs> he got shot in the room. Or they just in the room. Wow. What a story. And like you said, you know, a lot of these people have probably seen that from the episodes, but to hear the backstory and from, you know, someone who is there, um, it's, it's amazing. And, and what these guys had to go through, you know, and there are a lot of events like this, and we talked about this from not just, you know, the soldier's perspective of those soldiers who were on Dunkirk, but then also George's father, you know, but getting back to the civilians in the French resistance, these were, you know, again, these, these regular citizens uh, we're doing everything in their power to help the Allied forces, you know, take over the country and and uh, win this war more decisively than if they weren't engaged and involved. And to bounce off of that too, uh, I, I, Eisenhower captures that. He tells you he he's been quoted that the French resistance were uh, is were equivalent to six divisions, six divisions. Their their efforts. Uh, their participation. I mean, that's monumental. And I heard some numbers like between 220 and 400,000, I guess, in total. Does that sound about right, Joey? Well, the trigger didn't really grow until the Vichy uh, designated that every military age male in 43 was to uh, report for military duty. That, I mean, let's back up. There, there wasn't a whole lot left between the capitulation of France, uh, of what was left of the French army, what went into exile, and then, you know, French citizens of military age male. And that, that was the line in the sand for some of them where they just wanted to be ambivalent and try to get through this and live a different life to the point of, okay, I, I can't go there. That And that's when the ranks swelled up into the the above 200,000s that you're, you're talking about, Robert. Okay. I wasn't sure, but, um, I mean, that's just tremendous in and of itself. I mean, when you start thinking about how obviously word was getting around that the resistance is making, you know, progress, that things are, are, you know, such that, Hey, if we, we get engaged and we get involved in stuff, it's working. We, we might be able to, to make a change here. Um, obviously that's, that's how this thing really started going. Cause that's a rather large number when you think about it, you know? Yeah, especially when you let's let's back up to the American uh, to the American Revolution. At any given time, I think we were only sitting at about four hundred and eighty thousand uh, Continental soldiers. At all together, maybe two hundred and thirty, including militia. So yeah, that's a that's a that's a big deal. That's a big number, and I I want to jump onto that where I I I do not think that. Uh, I believe that the trigger was where the Maquis, where the Maquis really got strong was when the Vichy put out the the law of hey you need to report for military duty if you're not in a factory already, or if you're in a factory and it's this factory that we don't need anymore we need you on the front. Uh, I, I I believe that was the trigger. It wasn't necessarily that there was a decisive point that hey I think we're going to actually turn this around. Let me move forward. Okay, and I. And I think historically, a lot of folks want to want to put the the French on that. They get a bad rap, uh, you know. But we weren't in their shoes either. Right, right. Well, we so. talked about offline a little bit about just that, and about how in America we really haven't been oppressed in the way in which other countries have. 
you know, and we, we don't we don't know oppression in that same way. So it's kind of hard to know what we would do. And we even joked a little bit about another television show that's out there, The Man in the High Castle, and a where there's a, a another you know perspective or a world that's going on where the Japanese occupied the west side of America and the Germans occupied the east side with a no man's land kind of in the middle. You know, and it's uh, you think about if there weren't certain events that took place, how real that possibly you know could have been. Um, no, I, I think I think you're right. I think we, we talked about, you know, um, in this country, we various different groups in this country experience oppression um, on a on a level that that I think most people don't quite get. Right. Uh, but I think on a level of oppression that we were talking about with the French, when you have a, a, a foreign government come in and institute uh, rules and regulations against you. Um, I, I, I think that's not a level of oppression that anyone in America has experienced. Um, no matter who you are in America, you can go to Walmart 24 hours a day. You have access to your cell phone and social media 24 hours a day. Uh, you, you, can, you can talk about one side or the other, I, I think, delivering or, or, or uh, placing oppression on, on one uh, faction of America, but it's not what the French ex- have experienced. It's not what other nations have experienced uh, at the hands of, of a, a foreign army as, as occupiers. And I think from that perspective, um, you know, we, we don't quite understand what it took to get to the level of uh, actually what to, to bring up the quote, which I'll butcher that you brought up at the beginning, Robert, uh, about, you know, basically crossing that level of breaking the law, um, putting your life on the line to, to do something and to make some sort of change. You know, what we see going on in America over the last 10, 15 years, really even over the last week, does not rise to that level, in my opinion. And if I just hijack this whole thing, edit that all out. No, no, that's a, that's an actual, um, it's a great point, Mike, because I think, you know, we, we talk about things occasionally about, you know, first world problems, you know, and, and, uh, but many people have not left the United States and visited third world countries or been in areas and truly saw or, or understood the history, like we're describing here of, um, being occupied and being oppressed by, um, an, an entity, a foreigner, a government, a belief system, a, a changing of the culture, uh, to where it's that drastic, you know, uh, you know, where, your rights and civil liberties that we enjoy today are really, um, you know, being stripped. My experience with, um, you know, listening to some of the kids, the younger kids in their point of view, uh, one of my first questions with them is after I get an opportunity to listen to them for a while is ask them if they've actually been out of the country and, and spent time in other countries and listen to the people to understand what a lot of what we're talking about today and what it means, and if they have had that experience at all. And in most cases, um, most have not. Some have, but most have not. Yeah. So so their view is somewhat skewed, um, is my understanding. 
Yeah, and I and I think that enough time has passed in history that again it goes back to what we were first talking about, Mike, in in terms of education that we don't get a chance to really dive deep into some of these topics to under truly appreciate and understand the events that took place. And I know one of the things that you guys are doing, and the reason why we we wanted to bring this kind of to the forefront is you're, you're spearheading um, an activity here to honor those who participated within the first French resistance. And, and maybe, you know, Joey, you can share a little bit about why that came about and, and what it is um, so that we can really pay the respects to these individuals that we talked about during the show. Yeah, absolutely. Robert. Uh, and this quick succinct story I'm going to tell you is how I roped these guys into this too. Uh, so it was, during COVID, and I probably shouldn't say during COVID because we're still in COVID, but uh, <laughs> during the initial lockdown in the spring, um, as a practitioner, I, I like to study. You know, I love military history, especially World War One, World War Two, and started to gravitate towards uh, resistance networks and particularly the French Resistance. And I coincidentally one evening watched uh, this documentary uh, by Tim Gray. Uh, I believe it was George, is that Tim Gray? Uh, he also did Hang Tough, that Stephen Spears did that sculpture. But this was on the Navy Heroes of Normandy, I believe, on Amazon Prime. And it talked about some 67 years later uh, how they finally honored uh, Operation Neptune's contributions to Operation Overlord. Again, Overlord being the decisive operation, Neptune being a shaping operation, and very instrumental. And uh, I was like, wow, how did it take this long for them to capture that and, and tell this story and to honor those those men? And I was also thinking the same thing about the French resistance, because you can go throughout France and a lot of small towns in the middle of nowhere in Brittany and you'll find things. Uh, but it just really floored me that in Normandy, which is the Mecca for uh, the annual pilgrimage and uh, for the European theater of operations, the, the liberation of Europe, everybody goes there. I mean, I go there. I've, I've been going there since 2013. Uh, I always try to convince my friends to go because it's a life-changing experience every time I go. Uh, and uh, back to going there, there's nothing there for the French resistance, mm. which I think is monumental in making that happen. So I start to uh, try to leverage people I know to do something about it. And it just keeps coming back that unless you do it, it ain't hap- it's not going to happen. So I've been building this thing as I've been flying it, you know, since the spring and, uh, of friends of mine, of operation democracy, it's a 501 C three. Uh, they have a relationship with, uh, St. Mary Glees that started in 47 from, uh, uh, the 325th uh, Glider Infantry Regiment out of the 82nd. The colonel and his wife returned to Normandy, wanted to help rebuild St. Mary Glees. Starts this 501C and it died out some odd years later and Kathy Sorov stood it back up in the early 2000s. And uh, I, I started to talk to her about this project and she says, hey, I'm all in. What, what do you need? I was like, I just need you to be a vessel. So uh, I started leveraging Mike and and, and Kyle, Kyle was like, hey, what, what can I do? I was like, uh, media. <laughs> so uh, in, in, in the same with George, you know, he's like, hey, whatever I can do to help. And, and again, we don't really know what we're doing. We just we're doing what we think is right. 
And that's just creating awareness, trying to raise money to uh, build this monument, which is being built at this moment in uh, Loveland, Colorado, just a couple hours up the road by Steven Spears, who also did the uh, monument on Utah Beach for the Navy that we were just talking about and mm-hmm. the Dick Winters uh, Leadership Memorial monument that uh, George was intimately involved with. So after watching those documentaries, I, I got I got to know who this guy is. His work is good, and he's obviously like-minded. So um, I call him. Uh, I try to call him, and I'm doing the telephone game with a bunch of other people that put me in touch with them, and I tell him uh, very briefly what I'm trying to do, and he said, I'm in. Wow. <laughs> so... Here, here we are. We're uh, halfway over the fundraising. Uh, we got about 135k, 135,000 more to go uh, to make this come to fruition. Uh, and if if we can keep going, which we keep bringing down to the line, I, I, I think it'll happen. And it'll ship in May to uh, Charles de Gaulle, and it'll line haul up into Saint Marie du Mont, which is the uh, where the monument will go up. Uh, and it's going to provide a venue. Uh, so as I was saying, everyone comes annually, all these uh, liberty-loving people, that they can actually complete the story of uh, what made that happen so it's not lost. And I hope this continues on to, to where folks want to learn more. I hope to do an annual uh, um, uh, kind of a scholarship for uh, kids to go over. Uh, and stay there for a week and and be able to learn more about this history. Two things I, I really want to talk about, and one is uh, I'd like you to explain a little bit about what that monument looks like, but two, you shared um, with me at another time, you know, just how that pilgrimage um, is performed by local people, people in Normandy and, and the French that come to Normandy on an annual basis and how they they really see this liberation and it's, it's powerful. Um, so I'd love you to kind of describe that and, and what you experienced, especially by those people and why you felt so moved to do this and what this, this monument looks like and, and why, um, how beautiful it'll be to actually represent what they did and our appreciation, especially from the American people who would be helping contribute to this cause. Yeah, absolutely. What are the catalysts of this, um, effort has been witnessing what the French do for our veterans. It is a hands-down life-changing experience that I cannot even put into words on how the French honor our veterans that go over, which we are losing, you know, by the day. We're very low on numbers, which is another rush to have this done by this summer. Uh, but it's they're so selfless in what they do and how they host um, Americans out, um, everyone around the world, in, including the veterans, uh, uh, during the the uh, anniversary. And it's also dawned on me is like, how could these people, you know, thank everyone else but themselves? What what better way to take care of them, of like a for lack of way. Of, lack of a better way of putting it a uh, reverse statue of liberty you know like hey this is from us to you yeah. um uh not from the not government to government you know the american citizen to right. the french citizen and um the, and here we are and the monument will look like as we discussed earlier of uh um 
the the resistance, the auxiliary, the underground, and the gorilla. The the gorilla uh, fighter, uh, gorilla member will be a middle aged man holding a Mark II stun, uh, while standing at a table or a barrel that's uh, particular to the region, a Calvados barrel, with a board on top of a map, and a, a radio system. Uh, that the uh, the underground, the young female, is using to press out a message that was brought in from the auxiliary, a young teenage boy on a bicycle, uh, giving her that message to be sent. So I, I believe that this captures every man, woman, and child that participated in the French resistance. Uh, does not leave anybody out, includes everyone, and, uh, and it puts it at a very... Uh, decisive point where everyone will be able to see you know we talked about those um americans um that there's not very many americans left who who fought within world war ii but i think the same is true of those who fought within the french resistance you know and there's there's only a few of those remaining one of them recently actually passed away daniel cordier uh was 100 years old and so, I mean, they're aging. Um, this would be a great tribute to those individuals who were still there and still around um, and their families. You know, we're talking uh, first, second generation families from this conflict that will be available to to witness this event, to see this statue um, and have a place in which they can remember um, their, those members and, and, and owe their, you know, share their respect. And we're bringing either those people or their their relatives forward. Um, as Kyle was mentioning earlier, uh, Marie Madeleine Forsade, her son Jacques, who I've been uh, Jacques, who I've been uh, emailing with, he's showing up. Uh, a friend of mine out of Brooklyn, her father was in the uh, uh, French Resistance. Uh, Monique Tappy, uh, she's going to uh, be there. And Sebastian Orlot, who lives in, um, I believe it's Verville-Sumer, right behind Omaha Beach, part of the 80, he's the son of the 80-person 80, 80 resistance network. Uh, five of the survivors that were deported to Birkenau that survived are going to be there at the ceremony. Wow. Uh, so it's it's a powerful thing that, that keeps growing every day. Uh it's it's very uh, meaningful when it comes to just humanity, and uh, it, 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 I'm really looking forward to this. Well, this is such an important time period, not only in history, but I think right now it's even more important for us to to reach across to to love one another um, all those types of things because we're, we're getting kind of lost and history is being skewed and um, and this is not a political rant it's just more of facts that's going on out there and it's important that we remember those who played a role in our freedoms and this is one way in which you guys are doing that so people are going to listen to this episode and they're going to get a bit of a history lesson they're going to have the opportunity to hear from a son of somebody who was there and, and jumped in the D-Day and, and uh, a lesson about the individuals within France who helped liberate and play a, a pivotal role in the changing of, of what we experience now as our history. But when they listen to this, where can they go to say, hey, listen, I want to be a part of this and, and I want to make my small contribution to be able to have something like this take place? So... I, I urge everyone to go to Operation Democracy website. 
go to the projects and, and the drop down into uh, the Normandy French Resistance Monument. It, please follow us on Instagram. Uh, if you just type in Normandy French Resistance Monument as well as LinkedIn and Facebook. Myself, Kyle, and uh, another, hist- uh, he's a real historian, Joe Peters. Uh, he, we're, we're uploading content almost daily uh, to educate, provide more awareness of the project, the, the progress of the, of the uh, monument. Uh, you can, those are the great at, uh, places to go to learn more about uh, the monument. And you can donate either on a GoFundMe if you uh, search Normandy French Resistance Monument or if you just go to the, to the webpage of Operation Democracy, uh, you can click on the donate it's by PayPal. Or if you want, you can send in a check uh, to the address in Locust Valley, New York, uh, which is on Long Island. Yeah. I, well, I appreciate, you know, first off, Mike, it was great to see you again and have you a part of it. But I also appreciate you, Joey, George, and uh, Kyle for coming on and, and talking so much about this topic and I can sense, you know, and feel your passion towards this and, and how much you guys want to deliver. We only have a few months left, as we all know, sitting here, you know, it's January and, you know, we're, we're talking about something you wanting to get shipped out from Colorado in May. So time is of the essence. And unfortunately, you know, it takes finances to be able to do things like this. And I know times are tough for some individuals, but this is an important task that you guys have undertaken that will live on uh, forever. And if anybody ever gets a chance to go to Normandy, you'll, you'll see something that you help contribute to right there in a monument, understanding the history by just listening to this uh, podcast and possibly even meet some of the family members who are part of it, either through like George, that uh, his parents, you know, his father jumped into D-Day or somebody who perhaps is a relative from somebody from the French resistance that, um, you know, can also share their story. So it's a, it's a great thing to wrap yourself around. I hope a lot of people actually listen to this, participate and go to one of those websites. We'll make sure we include uh, the main 501c3 website on the link so that people can go there and uh, make a, a donation through that means. And of course, uh, encourage them to follow you guys through social media to get updates and what, what's going on with the project and where it's at. And you'll get a chance to see great pictures of what it looks like and uh, the the current events of where it's at in, in place and stuff. So once again, thank you all for, for joining the show and, and for sharing all of this uh, this great history. I look forward to seeing it myself one day when I go over there. Thank Thanks, you, Robert. Robert. Thanks, Robert. Yeah. Really appreciate having us. And everybody makes it over there. Uh, I'll buy you a beer. My treat, Mike Pritz is buying. <laughs> we'll put it on Mike's credit card. I guess you already have the number. It's already run up, so I'll just keep running.